Matthew chapter 28, a part of Matthew that will be very familiar to us from verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Great. Well, uh, let's have our Bibles open at uh, one of the most famous passages in Scripture, um, Matthew 28. Um, You may think, I've heard this all before, and that's possibly true, but hopefully it'll come with new freshness this morning. Matthew 28, 16 to 20, um, entitled The Great Commission. Now, I was reading an article recently from the man who heads up the Thomas Nelson Publishing Company, which is a world-leading publisher of Christian books about how he runs his company. And this is what he said in his article. He said, vision and strategy are both important, but there is a priority to them. Vision always comes first, always. If you have a clear vision, you will eventually attract the right strategy. But if you don't have a clear vision, then no strategy will save you. I have seen this over and over again in my professional and personal life. Once I got clear on what I wanted, the how almost took care of itself. Now this morning as we consider the vision of our church, we are looking at what has been called the Great Commission. It is a vision of what Christ wants His church to be about in every generation. And we could spend a lot of time this morning discussing concrete strategy, how to do church, how to do youth work, how to do home groups, all of that kind of thing. But the most important thing is that we have a clear vision in place. And we don't make up our own vision. The elders don't sit around saying, what's our vision for the future? We have been given our vision already by Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And this vision must constantly take precedence and govern our strategy, the how-tos of church. So this morning is all about what is the vision? And it's a vision in this passage that comes to us in four parts. Firstly, we come to Christ in all our weakness. We come to Christ in all our weakness. This vision does not begin in verse 18 with the commands of Jesus. It begins in verse 16 with the people who are climbing the mountain to receive the commands of the risen Christ. Understanding Christ's vision for the church means getting to grips with who we are as fallen men and women that Christ is building His church into, every bit as much as what Christ is calling us to do. So this Great Commission passage begins with emphasizing the weaknesses of these first disciples who became the leaders of the first church. 
So if you look at verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, there's no attempt here to hide the weaknesses of these first disciples. For one thing, there were only 11 disciples, not Jesus' original vision of 12. Why were there only 11? Because, of course, Judas betrayed his Savior, even though he was one of the 12 men that Jesus had handpicked. And, of course, Judas wasn't the only problem. The Gospels don't hide the uncomfortable fact that the other disciples had run away when Jesus was arrested, and the only one who followed him all the way to his trial, Peter, he then denied knowing Jesus when he was under pressure. So that was the raw material that Jesus had to build his church with. And when these eleven disciples had climbed the mountain to see Jesus in his resurrected glory, we are told, verse 17, they worshipped but some doubted, which seemed quite extraordinary. These disciples had seen all of Jesus' miracles. They had heard Him predict His own resurrection. They had seen Him alive several times now over a period of 40 days. And now they were standing on a mountain looking straight at the risen body of Jesus. And even then, some doubted. And I love the honesty of these Gospels. They put on full display the doubts and the sins and the failures even of the original apostles on whom the entire witness of the church was built. And of course, these same doubts and fears and failures are in this room today. All of us, myself included, we come in all our weakness to receive this great commission from the risen Christ. The church is full of people who are betrayers and doubters. I know that because I'm one of them. We all wrestle with our own doubts and sins as we come to Jesus and hear His call on our lives, and it will always be that way. But that doesn't stop Jesus from building His church among us and calling us to serve Him with all our hearts, despite all our weaknesses. And church is made up of forgiven sinners with all kinds of hang-ups and broken relationships and moments of outright apostasy, because that is who we are. That's who we've always been. The church will hurt us and disappoint us at times, and we will hurt the church and disappoint each other at times. But we are still called together to reach a lost world for Jesus Christ. And if we're going to do that, we need to be patient. We need to be patient with ourselves. We are all a work in progress. We need to be certainly patient with each other, forgiving each other's faults and failures and not jumping on each other every time we make a mistake. Larry Crabb, the psychologist, says church should be the safest place on earth to make a mistake. It's like that slogan on the t-shirt that says, be patient, God hasn't finished with me yet. That's true of every single person in this room today, myself included. And it reminds us that any progress we are going to make in this church will demand that we live well with each other's faults, that we are quick to say sorry and slow to take aim at anybody else. 
We come in all of our weakness, but our weaknesses don't stop us from coming to Christ and learning from Him. That's what this amazing mountaintop setting is teaching us. And for all their faults, these eleven disciples had left their professions to follow Jesus Christ. They had fully committed themselves to Him and were climbing the mountain to hear His Word. That's who we are as a church. We're all at different stages of our spiritual journey. There are some brand new Christians in this room today, praise the Lord. There are some who have been in the faith for 50 years. All of us with doubts and fears and failures and hang-ups of all kinds, some of us bewildered in the face of suffering that we're going through right now that we just can't understand. But we are all of us climbing this mountain together to receive the great commission from our risen Lord. That is part of the vision of the church, a people who come in all their weakness but who are still climbing the mountain to meet with Christ, to worship Him, to learn from Him, and obey Him. And that is the kind of church that can change the world. These eleven apostles changed the world with all their weaknesses and sin. So we're not a, a sinless church here today that we commemorate on a stained glass window. That's not what Jesus is looking for. We are a redeemed church full of broken people slowly being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So this passage is all about the vision of the church in every age. We come in our weakness. But we are given Christ's unrivaled authority. We are given Christ's unrivaled authority. That's what verse 18 reminds us. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is quite a statement, isn't it? Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. After His death for our sins, God raised His own Son from the dead and seated Him in heaven and has given Him authority over the whole of creation. And that includes His authority over your life and mine here this morning. Jesus is the number one authority in our lives. Scripture often uses the word redeemed to talk about our salvation. To redeem means to buy back from slavery. And Jesus, who created us in the first place, has now bought us back to Himself by His precious blood. We belong to Jesus twice over. We look to Him now as a servant looks to His Master. So Jesus can't be a bit part player in your life. He needs to sit on the throne of your heart. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means handing your whole life, your dreams, your desires, your plans and motives entirely over to Jesus Christ to reshape them. And He has been given all authority in heaven and earth, including authority over you. That is where this Great Commission begins. We do not belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Him who bought us. You're not going to listen to His commands unless you are convinced that He is Lord over all. Is that the way you're viewing your life right now? Do you view serving Jesus as a kind of optional extra? 
once you've done your job and raised your kids and taken your holidays? Or are you chained to Christ's commands? Are you looking to fulfill the Great Commission through your work, through your family, through your passions and interests? Jesus Christ, the risen, ascended Son of God, has unrivaled authority over our own lives. That's the very basis on which the church is built. But as we live under His authority, we also witness through His authority. So, Jesus has authority to bring men and women and children from all kinds of backgrounds into His salvation and under His dominion. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't spread the gospel in our own power. Jesus can open blind eyes. Jesus can turn the most rebellious heart towards the gospel. He is the great life changer. He's changed our lives. When the Apostle Paul was deeply discouraged in the godless city of Corinth, which has a lot of similarities with modern-day Aberdeen, God appeared to Paul in the middle of the night and told him to keep going. And the motivation to keep going were these amazing words. God said to Paul, I still have many people in this city to reach. So God assured Paul that despite the suffering he was going through, God was going to call many more people in that city to salvation. He's in control of salvation. We go in His authority to call people to salvation, and God has promised that He will draw men and women to Himself. And we believe that God has many people still to save in this city of Aberdeen, in this beautiful northeast of Scotland. All authority has been given to Jesus. Authority over the power of your witness. You don't have to try and think of the right words to say as you nervously go to a friend. He will give you authority. He has authority over the salvation of our friends and family. He can open blind eyes. He has authority over Satan himself who tries to discourage us and blind unbelievers. As that wonderful hymn says, we go in faith our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day Thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing, we rest on Thee, and in Thy name we go. We rest on Thee, our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle. Thine shall be the praise. When passing through the gates of pearly splendor, victors we rest with Thee through endless days. As a church, we come in our weakness, but we are given Christ's unrivaled authority. But authority to do what exactly? What is this great commission that has been given to every church in every age? It's very misunderstood among Christians today. The great commission is quite simply this, that we make disciples. Two words, make disciples. So verse 19, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, with this authority behind you, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, this verb go is a participle in the Greek, meaning literally, as you go, be making disciples. In other words, making disciples is part and parcel of daily life outside of Sunday and involves us being on the move as Christians. And so a church like Deeside Christian Fellowship that has been established and has grown over almost 50 years now, that church should naturally be looking out and saying, where can we make more disciples for Jesus in other parts of the city? So all the strain and pain that it has taken to establish churches like Bankery Christian Fellowship back in the early 2000s, and now the opportunities in Donside and Hope Church in Torrey, that is us simply obeying the Great Commission. That is how church works. God wants the church to grow both numerically and geographically. So people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language are gathered before the throne. Have you got that vision yet? Because I didn't in my early days in this church. Rather than just adding to our numbers here, which is great and exciting, if new churches can be established in very different communities, then that is a greater triumph for the kingdom of God. You see that? It is worth the pain and the frustrations and the organizational challenges that are coming our way. We're a church at full stretch. If I could give a personal anecdote here. Um, Several years ago, I was very angry with God because we had prayed as a church and I had my dream set. We were looking for a piece of land about five minutes down the road here to build a brand spanking new building, 800-seater. I remember even seeing the plans and I was so excited by the plans. Surely this must be God's will. And we got together fairly large prayer meetings as well to say, Lord, if it's your will, give us this land. And people in the community rose up. They were against it. The council said no. And I was gutted. I had built my own design, an 800-seater auditorium. How could God be against that? And that was the start of us saying, well, God doesn't want that. So we started that Easter going to two services in this building, leaks and all. And that forced us down the line more and more of saying, actually, God's will is not that everybody, 800 people come and gather here, but that we plant, 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 plant. And now this morning, as I look out, years after I was so angry with God for not following my will, this morning we have Banker Christian Fellowship up the road, brand new building opening in Dawnside, and Hope Church this afternoon, a family of churches. And it makes me realize quite powerfully, actually, God's ways are far better than mine. My vision, frankly, was ego-driven, not the glory of God-driven. So he's made a change in me, and I hope he makes a change in you as well. And let's be clear that the mandate here is not to make converts but to make disciples. Those are two different things. To make fully mature followers of Jesus Christ. That is not a process that happens quickly, and our age loves the quick fix. 
It involves us witnessing to our friends and family, staying in relationship with them over a long period of time. It takes a long haul now for the totally secular person to start to think, I need God in my life. Hang in there with them. Pray your heart out for them over a long period of time. And then if your friend comes to faith, teaching them personally, teaching them how to pray and how to read the Bible. Don't kind of hand it over to the professionals in the church. You make disciples. Encourage your friend to get established in the church, not as a pew warmer, but an active member. And helping them adapt to the huge jump there is to listening to deep Bible teaching week in and week out. We can't lead anyone else to where we haven't been ourselves. We need to be growing as disciples ourselves first and foremost before we can make disciples of others. But we've said this again and again. Decide is not a teaching center that we want people to come to. It's a mission center we want people to be sent from. I think for many years now, Decide has been seen as a teaching center, including by other churches in the city. It's not a teaching center. It's a mission center that people are sent from. We want to encourage real discipleship in our home groups, where we not only pray for each other's needs, but we spur one another on towards greater and greater Christ-likeness. We're thinking all the time, how can I spur my brother across the room, my sister here? How can I spur that person on towards godliness? That's making disciples. It's anything but a quick fix. But the aim of the church is not to make converts, but to call people to a fully rounded biblical faith. And Jesus specifically mentions here baptizing people. Baptism is a radical picture. It means the process of dying to yourself more and more and being immersed into all that God is and wants us to be in Christ. So we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So surely we're getting to know the Trinity. Baptism is a radical picture of dying to ourselves and being immersed in the Trinity. Immersed. Not sprinkled. Sorry for that rude joke. May we be united and passionate about this long-term goal of producing mature disciples. Not following the latest gimmicks to produce converts but being a Bible-driven fellowship who walk with each other over the long haul until Christ is fully formed in us. That's the Great Commission. Jesus ultimately wants disciple-making disciples. So ask yourself today, am I a disciple-making disciple? That's the question. We haven't fulfilled the Great Commission until the church is full of mature believers who are looking to bring others to maturity in Christ. So ask yourself, who am I looking to bring to maturity in Christ? As a church, there can be nothing shallow or short-term about our vision, no matter what the culture tells us. We will not compromise on deeper-level teaching. And if some turn away because the cost of following Jesus seems too great, then we grieve over that, but it shows that they've got the message. And we are not presenting Jesus on the cheap. We're not trying to create a kind of an emotional feeling on a Sunday morning and calling people to the front, and you've got it. Those who believe easily fall away easily. 
Like Paul, we are in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul said that to Christians in Galatia. I'm in the pains of childbirth. My job isn't finished because you signed on the dotted line. I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is fully formed in you. How do we do that? Well, making disciples begins at home. Training our children and grandchildren in the world. Use that word training at home. It involves teaching Sunday school and leading youth work in a way that produces young disciples. And I'm so proud of our children's and youth work because we haven't shortchanged our young people on the Bible, Bible truth. It's not an entertainment culture we're creating. And we are praying them into maturity. That's part of your role if you're a junior church teacher or a youth leader. Are you praying your young disciples into more and more mature discipleship? having a constant pass-it-on mentality. It means not being content sitting in a pew listening to teaching, but rather using that teaching to equip and inspire us to make disciples all around us, having a constant pass-it-on mentality. C.S. Lewis said, and I love this quote, C.S. Lewis said, I don't want high church. I don't want low church. I want deep church. So does Jesus. John Stott, the great Anglican minister, said, Sermonettes produce Christianettes. If sermons on a Sunday are 10 minutes to 50 minutes and half of it's storytelling, you will not have disciples coming out the other side. Impossible. Brothers and sisters, we want you to be so immersed in this word that you start to think the thoughts of God after him. And our call is, as verse 20 clearly says, to teach you to obey all that Christ has commanded. That's a lot of things. That involves depth and challenge. It involves serious thinking leading to devoted living. We are not here to make converts that are here today and gone tomorrow but to make disciple-making disciples. So as we measure how we're doing as a church, and we need to be doing that in some ways, it's not about how many have come to faith this year, how many people have dipped in the baptism tank. I don't know what that tells us. It's about how many disciple-making disciples do we have in this church, and how do we produce more? That is the heart of the Great Commission. So as a church, we come in all our weakness, but with Christ's unrivaled authority, and we come to make disciples, or rather, disciple-making disciples. And we do this until the end of the age. Until the end of the age. The Great Commission will come to an end. The time is short. The months and weeks and days we have to make disciples is limited. In verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ promises that He will be with us every step of the way, in triumph as well as tragedy, in tears as well as joy, until the day when faith turns to sight and we dwell with Him eternally in the new world that He is coming to build. That's the future. And Christ ends this challenging Great Commission with these words of comfort. These are comforting words because if we're truly going to become this mature church full of disciple-making disciples who want to see the gospel move into new cultures, then that road is guaranteed to be painful.
and we will be open to attack from Satan in all kinds of ways. Satan does not need to attack sleepy churches that stay safe and everything remains the same for 50, 60, 70 years. We're all safe and comfortable and snug. And elders meetings aren't talking about very much because there's nothing much to talk about. Satan is panicky about churches that break open their wineskins. A maturing church will also be a suffering church. There is no other way to glory than the Calvary Road. Jesus said it, Paul said it, the New Testament says it. And that is why Christ said to these disciples, most of whom would be martyred for their faith. History records 10 out of these 11, John was the only exception we think, 10 out of these 11 were, were martyred for following Jesus. That's why he says to them, I will be with you always, even in death. I'll take your hand as you die for the faith. But the beautiful thing is that we are more aware of Christ's presence in the pain than we ever are when we're living on easy street. And after we have been placed under Jesus' fire through the many trials that he allows for our refining as individuals and as a church, we will take our place in the new Jerusalem where we won't need this promise anymore. Jesus won't need to reassure us that he will be with us always because he'll be right there in front of us face to face. John 14, beautiful words. Jesus said to his disciples the night before he was going to die and their worlds were turned upside down. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And if I go, I will come again and take you to be with me. He will take you either by your death or by his second coming. I don't know which is going to happen first. I will take you to be with me where I am, that you may be where I am forever. And that will be, says Jesus, at the end of the age. There are dates and times put on it. Only the Father knows what those dates and times are, but there is a definite date in heaven's diary when the Son of Man will return in power and glory. The sky will open. Every eye will see him. And he'll come to take us home. But until then, what should we be getting on with? Well, we keep coming with all our weakness, but with his unrivaled authority to make disciple-making disciples until the end of the age. That's our job. May God pour out a spirit on us and empower us to do this until he comes. Amen. Amen. Our time is gone. It was always going to be an extended service today. Let's have a moment of quiet. Think through what's God been saying to you. How am I going to become a disciple-making disciple? Think that through. I'll pray and we'll sing. Father, thank you that we don't have to guess what we should be doing until Jesus comes again. You've laid it out so clearly. Help each of us to be deeply challenged this morning about what it means to be a disciple-making disciple and help us to just take the next step wherever we're at. We know that there are some new Christians in this room today. Praise God, Father, that you've been saving people this year in this church. Hallelujah. I pray that those new Christians will make the next step 
praying every day, reading the Bible every day, getting to understand it more, understanding the beauty of Christian fellowship. May our home groups be open and welcome to folks at all stages of the Christian journey with hang-ups and all. And I pray, Father, that we will truly understand and agree with Jesus here that our job is not to sit in a pew and grade a sermon out of ten every week, but to be equipped to look first of all at our children, grandchildren, family, maybe parents, maybe grandparents, and to think, how can I make a disciple here at home? And then to go to work and do the same. How can Jimmy across the desk, how can he become a disciple? He swears the place blue on a Monday. How on earth can the gospel come to him? Thank you, Jesus, that you have unrivaled authority. Give us faith that you can open the blindest eyes. And we pray that there will be many, many people who come from absolute secular thinking and secular mindsets through conversion, coming to know Jesus Christ personally, entering a one-to-one relationship with him, into getting stuck into Scripture, stuck into prayer, stuck into Christian fellowship, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, and coming out the other side as mature disciple-making disciples. Make us that, we pray. Speak to us if we're 70, 80 years old today. How can I be making disciples? Speak to us if we're 15. How can I be a disciple-making disciple? Speak to us as elders. How can we lead the way in being disciple-making disciples? Shape us, Father, until your kingdom come. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.